Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth and personal discussion of films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. In this episode, I talk about Michael Curtiz's 1945 film, Mildred Pierce. Joan Crawford won an Oscar for her powerful performance as the title character, a mother who in the wake of the end of her marriage starts her own restaurant business and tries to give a better life to her two daughters, Vita and Kay. But her eldest daughter, Vita, has an insatiable and destructive desire for material possessions, and Mildred will stop at nothing to give Vita all that she wants. This is a magnificent film about motherhood and class mobility. I talk about Joan Crawford's life, why she fascinates me as an actress, and I even delve into Mommy Dearest a little bit. As always, there are spoilers in this episode. If you'd like to support the work I'm doing, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. You can access extra episodes, vote in polls, and much more. Go to patreon.com slash herheadinfilms for more information. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash herheadinfilms. You can also review the podcast on iTunes. Please give me five stars. Tell your friends and followers about Her Head and Films. And you could also follow me on social media and interact with me on there in a positive way. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, and Twitter. There are links to all my social media accounts in the show notes of each episode. I'd like to tell you about one of my favorite art house streaming websites that I've loved for a few years now. It's called Ovid. That's O-V-I-D. The site is a partnership between several art house distributors, including Icarus Films and Women Make Movies. There's a wide variety of films in Ovid's catalog, from French thrillers to documentaries about history and the arts. One film they offer is Helen Kladowski's 1986 documentary, Painted Landscapes of the Times, which explores the passionate and political work of the English artist Sue Coe. Coe's art takes on social justice issues like animal rights, war, and AIDS activism. Another excellent film that Ovid offers is Shu Lee Chang's first feature film, Fresh Kill. It's an experimental film about two lesbian parents who fight against environmental racism. Both of these films showcase how Ovid offers unique and fascinating films that you can't often find anywhere else. On the site, you can also watch films by some of the greatest directors of our time, including Claire Denis and Patricio Guzman. I think those of you who enjoy my podcast would love Ovid, just like I do. You can use the code CINEMA to get your first month for free. Go to ovid.tv, that's O-V-I-D dot TV, to start watching. And in the show notes of this episode, there's a link to a curated selection of my favorite films on the site. I won't go on any longer. Here is my episode about Michael Curtiz's Mildred Pierce. I'm 
definitely excited to talk about this Joan Crawford film. Before I get into it, I did want to just have a more personal moment because that's what this podcast is about. It's about me, my life, my emotions, my experiences, and how I connect those things usually to the films that I watch. I just have to be honest right now about my life in like late 2021 as I'm recording this. I feel so worn down. I think after almost two years of this pandemic, after watching my mom suffer a lot, I've been taking care of my mom since early, early 2020 because her health has declined and she's really been struggling with things. So I've taken that role on as like a caregiver and trying to help her. I've been going through the pandemic. Plus, I deal with a lifetime of grief, trauma, and all kinds of things. Depression, anxiety, all of these things combined have worn me down, truly. I'm not who I used to be before all of these things happened. Because my mom's health issues really coincided with the beginning of the pandemic in 2020. And so those things together... And then just my ongoing struggles with depression, anxiety, losing my father when I was a teenager, struggling with loneliness and things like that, and my own disabilities and and all that. I felt like life could not go to this level of emotional pain on a daily basis. I, I thought with my father's death when I was a teenager, I thought that was the worst I had been through. And it continues to be the worst thing that I've ever endured. And it's a big reason um, for a lot of my issues and the trauma of that and just everything that happened as a result. It really did something to me. It broke me. But I think the last almost two years have broken me again. And so there are multiple fractures in my soul that I don't know how to fix in any way. I just feel at my limit. I feel beyond my limit, to be honest. And what's made it even worse, and I'm not sharing all this to complain or whine. I'm sharing all this in case other people are also struggling, in case other people are dealing with like profound depression. I have profound depression at this point. Struggling to get out of bed, struggling to function, not feeling pleasure or joy in hardly anything anymore. I don't even watch films hardly. I barely read anymore. The only thing I can do for the most part some days is create a bunch of playlists (laughs) and listen to music and just try to like do that. That's just where I am right now as I record this episode. It it changes. It ebbs and it flows. I go through periods where I feel a little bit better. I feel a little bit more stable. But lately, I would say for much of 2021, and it's September as I record this, I just have not even felt like myself. I don't know if I will ever 
be who I was before all of this, before the pandemic, before my mom's health issues, and what's happened to my life as a result. Like, I don't even recognize my life, and I don't know how to adjust to it. I don't know how to navigate it. And I think there's something happening in my brain where I can't bear my life, and I can't deal with it, and I can't cope with things. Something in me is shutting down emotionally. And I'm just sharing it in case other people are dealing with it. If you are, you're not alone with it. If you're not, be grateful that you're not, honestly, because I do have friends and we talk about this. Other people are struggling with this. They're absolutely struggling to survive life right now. And they may struggle for a long time to come. A lot of people have hit their breaking point for different reasons. For me, it's my mom's health and the pandemic and my just ongoing trauma and depression and anxiety and everything I deal with in my mind and in my body. And other people, they're at their breaking point for a different reason, whatever it might be. I also just feel a terrible loneliness and a terrible emptiness inside of me over some things that I'm not ready to talk about right now. All of these things have swirled and happened and the things that I used to be able to escape into, like cinema and literature and all that, like I can't do it anymore. Some Or sometimes I go through short periods where I can watch a lot. I don't have a lot of free time anymore. I'm either taking care of my mom or I'm working or I'm sleeping and just trying to survive, right? I don't even have time for the things that I used to be passionate about. And I don't feel passionate anymore. I feel like a shell of a person a lot of the time. Like I'm going through the motions and I'm just pretending. And I guess I just needed to say that right now in this episode. And I hope it changes. I know that feelings can fluctuate and change, but I've been feeling this for a really long time. And I don't even feel as passionate about this podcast as I used to. I used to feel a little bit of purpose with it. I don't feel that as much. Sometimes I'm like, what am I doing? Why am I talking about these films? Who cares? I mean, who really cares about me and my life and who I am? I I don't always feel that. And sometimes I question myself, but... I keep doing it because I want some kind of outlet. I want a place to share my voice and to talk about things. But I didn't mean to go on too much about this. But I'm sharing it just like I share all the other things that I do on this podcast to let people know that if they're in a similar situation after almost two years of this pandemic or whatever else you might be going through in your life. I lost my dog this year. I've been grieving that. I've been grieving the end of my life as I knew it. Like once my mom's health started to decline and I had to take on this role of taking care of her and all this, like my life ended as I had known it up to that point and everything changed. And I talk more about that in an episode about Michael Haneke's Amour if you want to know more. I think for all kinds of different reasons, some of us are really crawling and really struggling. I think particularly if you already struggled with depression and anxiety before the pandemic or before other life stressors, 
when those things happen and you're already struggling, it can put even more pressure on you and it can really break you. And I do feel a sense of brokenness at the moment and I'm pushing through it and I'm doing this episode, but it's there and it's in me and I have to be honest about it. And maybe some of you listening can feel it too. I try to create a little bit of an escape with these episodes, but my life trickles in my struggles and my pain trickles in, in different ways. Sometimes it's relevant to the film, sometimes it's not. But I just had to be honest about it. I have really been struggling the last couple of years. And there's no sense that it's going to get better. I have to hold on to hope. I don't know what the future holds. But I do wake up with a lot of fear, anxiety, depression, dread. I don't wake up happy to be alive. I don't wake up ready to take on the day. I wake up and I just try to survive and put one foot in front of the other. And that's all I can do. I try to find joy. I've been getting into candles. I listen to music. I try to watch a film now and then. (laughs) I watch the films for these episodes, but in my free time, I don't really watch a lot of films. I watch YouTube videos, (laughs) usually, uh, usually about makeup or candles. (laughs) That's what I do. I've been trying to meditate again, get back into that. I really need to try to read more. I need to, I need to get it together. I need to get myself together. But when you struggle with mental illness, it's very hard. It's very hard when your life becomes unbearable and you don't know how to cope with it and you don't have resources. You don't have a support system. You don't have a lot of the things that you need. And that's where I'm at. And I'm just trying to get through it. And maybe some of you listening are in a similar place where you just feel past your limits, past your breaking point. I'm there with you. That's all I'll say. I am there with you. And I spend way too much time on Instagram and Tumblr as a result. (laughs) And I just do a bunch of stuff to try to distract myself from my pain. And I just do stuff to try to fill the void but I don't feel like I'm necessarily making progress. It's a hard, difficult, agonizing time for me personally. I'm in a lot of emotional pain, and I just have to be honest about it. That's all I'll say. We'll talk about Mildred Pierce, and if you're a new listener and you made it this far, thanks. (laughs) I'm going to talk about Mildred Pierce now, I promise. But this is how I am, and I talk about my life. I talk about myself It gets personal, it gets real, (laughs) and it'll always be that way on this podcast. So, we're going to talk about Mildred Pierce. I love this film. I absolutely love this film. I saw it a few years ago. For some reason, recently, I just wanted to talk about Joan Crawford. I wanted to talk about this film. Actually, what, what inspired me to do a focus on Joan Crawford because I'm doing this episode about Mildred Pierce, and then I'm going to do an episode about humoresque. Watching humoresque was what really made me feel like, okay, I have to talk about Joan Crawford. That film blew me away. And then I got to thinking about Mildred Pierce and going back to it. I saw it a few years ago. So I rewatched it for this episode. Oh, God. I love this film. 
and I'm excited to talk about it. And I hope that anybody listening will enjoy this episode. I want to talk about Joan Crawford first. I want to give some information about her life. I want to talk a little bit about Mommy Dearest. I'm not going to go in depth about these things. I'm not a Hollywood historian here. This is not a You Must Remember This podcast, although that is one of the sources that I used. I don't cover a whole lot of classic Hollywood on this podcast because I don't know all that Hollywood, that classic Hollywood information the way other people do. But I did research and I wanted to share some things. So I want to talk about Joan's life a little bit, talk about Mommy Dearest, talk about some of the behind the scenes stuff of the making of Mildred Pierce, and then I'm going to talk about the film itself, what I love about it, what's so powerful for me about this film. And yeah, that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about Joan Crawford. I tell you, On some of my darkest days, watching a Joan Crawford film has helped me. (laughs) I just love this woman, and I find her endlessly fascinating, and I'm going to go into all of that in this episode. Something about her draws me to her, and it's still very mysterious out of all the classic Hollywood actresses why I'm so drawn to her. Uh, My favorite classic Hollywood figure is Marilyn Monroe. I've been obsessed with Marilyn Monroe since I was very, very young. And I always used to collect stuff of hers. I definitely want to talk about Marilyn on this podcast one day, but that would take a lot of research and stuff like that. So I haven't done it yet. But yeah, I love classic Hollywood. I grew up watching Turner classic movies. So yeah, I love Ingrid Bergman and Barbara Stanwyck and Betty Davis and Jean Tierney and Elizabeth Taylor. And who else am I forgetting? I'm sure I'm Catherine Hepburn, Audrey Hepburn, all of it. You know, I love Gene Kelly. So I'm a fan of classic Hollywood. I just don't know all the history. But Joan Crawford, out of all those actresses, I find her probably to be the most compelling to me. And so it was really fascinating to learn about her life. So she was born either in 1904 or 1908. It's not clear. Or maybe somewhere in between there. For some reason, her year of birth is not totally clear. She died of liver cancer in 1977. Her original name was Lucille Lesore. As we know, a lot of the classic Hollywood actresses changed their names. Marilyn Monroe is a really great example, right? And I actually didn't know Joan Crawford's original name until I did this research. Lucille Lesore. So that was what she was called. The two main sources of my information for this podcast is Karina Longworth's a six-part series about Joan Crawford on her podcast called You Must Remember This. Karina Longworth has an encyclopedic knowledge of Hollywood history, and it's a really great series. I definitely recommend it. Gave me a lot of insight into Joan. And then I also use the Criterion Collection Blu-ray edition of Mildred Pierce, which I highly recommend if you love this film. The restoration is gorgeous. And the extra features are excellent. There is like a feature-length documentary about Joan Crawford on it. There's an interview with Molly Haskell. There's an interview with Anne Blythe. There's an interview with Joan Crawford. There are some really good extra features that absolutely helped me understand this film better. 
So, according to the documentary Joan Crawford, The Ultimate Movie Star, this was made in the early 2000s. I think it might have been made by Turner Classic Movies, but I don't know for sure. And it's part of the Criterion Collection Blu-ray. So, according to that documentary, she grew up poor. Her father left the family when she was very young. The poverty of her early years really affected her. At times, she even worked as a maid at the school she attended. And that was pretty humiliating for her for the students to see her working as a maid. She started out as a dancer and a chorus girl in her career. She went to Hollywood. She changed her name from Lucille Lesore to Joan Crawford. She's a self-made woman in, a, in many ways. And I think that's always what fascinates me about a lot of the classic Hollywood actresses is that many of them came from nothing. Marilyn Monroe is a great example. They had very humble beginnings. I forgot to mention Natalie Wood. I love Natalie Wood too. Natalie Wood, Ingrid Bergman, Elizabeth Taylor, Catherine Hepburn. I want to see more Olivia de Havilland. I haven't seen a lot of her. I loved her in The Heiress. So Olivia de Havilland is, oh, Vivian Lee. Oh, I love Vivian Lee as well. So many great ones. So many great, great actresses. Now I want to watch a bunch of classic Hollywood films. I have all kinds of ladies that I love from the classic Hollywood era. A lot of these women were self-made. A lot of these women came from nothing. Or some of them started as child actors, right? Like, oh, Judy Garland. How did I forget Judy Garland? Judy Garland is one of my favorite, favorite classic Hollywood actresses. Oh my God, I love Judy Garland. I will be covering A Star is Born one day, I promise you. So Judy Garland, Natalie Wood, Elizabeth Taylor, I think they're really good examples where they started where they started really young and they were like child actresses and made their way through the studio system and all that. So a lot of them came from humble backgrounds and made themselves into these stars. And that's just fascinating to me, like how that happened. She began working at MGM and worked her way up, started at supporting roles, and eventually became a star. In the late 1920s, that's really when her career started to take off, and she became quite famous. She was in a lot of the women's pictures of the 1930s. I still need to watch a lot of those films. I thought this was interesting. She was a Christian scientist. I didn't know this until I was doing my research. She was also one of those women where she had multiple marriages to a lot of different men. Douglas Fairbanks Jr., Franco Tone, Philip Terry, Alfred Steele. So she married a lot. She was deemed psychologically unfit to adopt a child. This is according to that documentary. She found out eventually that she was not going to be able to have biological children. And so she knew she was going to have to adopt. And she went, she, I think she tried to go the normal way and she was deemed psychologically unfit to adopt a child. So she basically used a baby broker and bought her children or bought some of them. I don't know if she did that with every single one of them, but with Christina... She certainly did, Christina. And Christina is the one who would go on to write Mommy Dearest, which I'm going to talk about in a moment. In 1943, she left M MGM after 18 years of working there, and she went on to Warner Brothers Studio. And this represented a big shift in her career. This is when she made Mildred Pierce and Humoresque and 
other films that she became pretty famous for. And I'll talk more about Mildred Pierce and the making of that in a moment. She made Mildred Pierce and she made humor-esque and during this period she started to drink more and it kind of got out of control for her. I'm not sure if she would have been considered an alcoholic or anything. I'm not sure how much the drinking affected her life or how long it continued but I mean she did die of liver cancer. As we know Christina made allegations that Joan was abusive towards her and I am going to dig into that a little bit. I think we have to keep in mind that Joan herself was likely abused as a child. She was most likely sexually abused by a stepfather. This could be one explanation for the treatment of some of her children. Some of her children say that she was abusive, or Christina says she was abusive, but there are other children she adopted who say that that's not the experience that they had with Joan. Christina said that she would have these rages at night, and she would get very upset. One of them was about wire hangers, which is very big in Mommy Dear. So all of this is according to Christina, and I'm going to talk more about it. So as Joan's career went on, it sort of ebbed and flowed. She had periods where she was considered like box office poison, and then she would make a comeback. Mildred Pierce was a big comeback for her in the 1940s, and she would make a lot of good melodramas and good films, and then it kind of waned. And Betty Davis was also at Warner Brothers, I believe. And Betty Davis's career started to decline a bit, and that's when Joan started to get stronger. And she played like these really tough women and all kinds of melodramas dramas like Possessed, Flamingo Road, The Damned Don't Cry, and Harriet Craig. She had a streak there of like really interesting films. Whatever Happened to Baby Jane that she did with Betty Davis, that's pretty much the last great film she did. And then she shifted into these really campy, weird, terrible horror films. <laughs> for a while and kind of ended her career on that note, unfortunately. The thing is, is that Joan Crawford is like this deeply complex, fascinating woman, but she's been completely flattened and reduced to a caricature that we see in Mommy Dearest. And Mommy Dearest was a book that was written by her daughter, Christina Crawford, her adopted daughter, and it was published in 1978. She sold the book rights. Mommy Dearest, the film, came out in 1981, starring Faye Dunaway. Joan Crawford died in 1977, so Christina wrote this memoir after Joan Crawford's death, and she did leave Christina out of her will. That was something that she did do, and some people think that perhaps writing Mommy Dearest was an act of revenge against Joan. So after Joan died of liver cancer in 1977, that's when Christina Crawford published this memoir, this scathing memoir about Joan. I'm not going to deny that Joan Crawford was most likely an abusive parent. I think that's really clear. I'm in no way condoning the abuse that she did against Christina. And I'm not saying that Christina is lying or anything like that. I know that there might be people listening who have been in an abusive relationship or may have had abusive parents. And I understand how that could be a sensitive, triggering, difficult topic. I just think that with Joan Crawford and Christina, we have to talk about the context of what Christina wrote and what she said. I think at the same time, while Joan was probably abusive, she was a complicated woman. And it's not quite clear why she treated Christina this way or treated some of her children in this way and then didn't treat others 
in that way. It's I don't really believe in reducing Joan Crawford to this one memoir and certainly not to the Mommy Dearest film, which a lot of people feel is fictional, basically. And it's campy, and it's over the top, and it's a caricature, and it absolutely tarnished Joan Crawford's reputation and career. I just think that it's important to have a complicated or complex, nuanced exploration of this. We can say both things are true, that Joan Crawford was probably an abusive mother, at least to Christina, for reasons that are not quite clear, and that she also may have had abuse in her own life that caused her to act out in that way. It is not okay what she did, and it's not right what she did or how she treated her children or how she treated Christina. And I'm not condoning it, and I'm not excusing it or saying that it's okay. But she is more than just that. And we don't even know everything that's true about it. She was also this woman who had amazing roles and did interesting films and made herself into this Hollywood star. And she's a complex woman. She has flaws. She has terrible things she may have done. And she's also all these other things. And sometimes that's what people are. They're all these complicated, messy things, particularly classic Hollywood stars. If you're holding them to the standards of today as parents, as people, as actresses or actors, they're, they're always going to fall short. I think we need to look at them in their totality and who they were as a complete person. And so, yes, there's Mommy Dearest. There are these allegations of abuse, and we should not sweep them under the rug. We should not ignore them. But it's also important to say that Joan Crawford may have had her own abusive past. She was also a fascinating actress. She worked her way up the studio system and became one of the most famous actresses who ever lived. And that is worth talking about. And her films are worth watching. Her performances are worth seeing. And I think we can hold all of that together. And it, it may make you uncomfortable. It's hard to grapple with all these things. But when it comes to classic Hollywood and those stars and that world, yeah, people were complicated and messy. And some of them were messed up. And they weren't the greatest people. But that doesn't mean that I'm not going to watch Joan Crawford films. Or that I'm not going to talk about some of her performances that have moved me. That's what I'm trying to say is that I want to talk about all of of it. Want to acknowledge the abusive side of her and who she was beyond just that one thing. She was hard on her children. She came from nothing and she felt like they should be able to make it on their own. That could be why she cut them out of the wheel. So some of this is according to Karina Longworth in her series on the podcast, You Must Remember This. These are things that she said about Mommy Dearest. She said that Joan Crawford really liked Faye Dunaway. She considered Faye a really great actress. Karina says that many of Joan Crawford's biographers do think that Mommy Dearest is a work of fiction. Crawford's two youngest children, Cindy and Kathy, have said that Christina's account is not true. But Christina says of them that they may have gotten a different version of Joan Crawford. She was a bit older when she adopted them. And she may have treated them differently. And just because she treats some children one way, it doesn't mean that she couldn't have been abusive to another child. 
Other people who knew Joan Crawford also denied Christina's allegations. Uh, One even said that she wouldn't even have wire hangers in her closet at all because she didn't like them (laughs) and she hated them and they wouldn't have even been there to begin with. Even Betty Davis, who was a rival of Joan Crawford's, defended Joan after Christina's book came out. Now, did Betty Davis know everything about Joan Crawford? Not necessarily. And who a person is with you may not be who they are to somebody else. So I don't know if we can necessarily take Betty Davis's word that Joan Crawford was not abusive to Christina or to any of her other children. Pretty immediately after Christina wrote the book, she sold the rights to Paramount. The screenplay went through a lot of different drafts. This is what Karina Longworth said. And originally, Anne Bancroft was supposed to play Joan, but she didn't like the early versions of the script and she pulled out. So Faye Dunaway accepted the part. Interestingly enough, Faye was told that the film would be more balanced than Christina's book, but it really became this camp classic. It's a campy, campy film. It was directed by Frank Perry, released in 1981. By that time, Dunaway had won an Oscar for Network work a few years earlier. So with Mommy Dearest, I grew up on this film. This is a big film for me and my mom. We would watch it all the time. We watched it on Mother's Day. (laughs) I have so many memories of watching Mommy Dearest. It's just one of those films I always watch with my mom. Um, We also like Still Magnolias and The Way We Were. I need to do some episodes about these films, right? Like the films I watched with my mother. uh, We still watch them. We love Aaron Brockovich, The Devil Wears Prada. There are just certain films that if they are on cable TV, then me and my mom are going to watch them. And Mommy Dearest is one of them. It's campy. It's delicious and so pleasurable when you're watching it. It's so over the top. And I give kudos to Faye Dunaway because she did an excellent job. And I will, like every time that wire hanger scene comes on, (laughs) me and my mom are like, we yell it out, no wire hangers ever. (laughs) We have to do it. Like you have to yell it at the same time that Faye Dunaway is yelling it. You have to. And like, doesn't she have a mask on her face? Like, oh God, it's crazy. She has like some kind of a thing on her face when she does it too. It's so over the top, so over the top. But Mommy Dearest is a big reason why I stayed away from Joan Crawford for so long. I felt just turned off by this woman. Like I was put off by her. She is so monstrous. In that film, she is just like this one-dimensional, monstrous mother. That's what she is. Maybe the only other mother that comes close is the one in Ingmar Bergman's Autumn Sonata that Ingrid Bergman played. She comes off as a really horrible mother, right? I have an episode about Autumn Sonata. So she's just such a villain. She's so evil, in that film. She's so over the top and like obsessed with herself and selfish and self-centered and you're so turned off by it. Like you're horrified by this woman. Now that I think about it, she's kind of like Vita and Mildred Pierce. She is the villain. She's the monster. And it kept me away from Joan Crawford films for years. So I was shocked when I started to watch some Joan Crawford films a few years ago and absolutely fell in love with her screen presence and 
what she does as an actress. I was really surprised. That's why I wanted to talk about her. That's why I wanted to talk about Mildred Pierce and Humoresque later on because I wanted to talk about Joan Crawford. Like I want to talk about this woman and what she does to me, what her acting does to me and how much I love it and how much I love the women that she plays in her films. And I'm talking more about in her middle age, the films she did, like Mildred Pierce and, and other stuff like that. I love her in The Women. She's really great in that. So I've seen a few Joan Crawford films. I absolutely love Johnny Guitar. If you've not seen Johnny Guitar, it is insane. <laughs> I don't even know how to describe it to you. I don't even like westerns. I'm not much of a western person. It is a western by Nicholas Ray and it's in Technicolor and it I still remember watching it years ago and I was blown away by it. It is it is nuts, but you have to see it. It will knock you out. Johnny Guitar is one of those films. I may have to do an episode one day. Joan is ferocious, ferocious in it. I can't get over it. I've obviously seen Mildred Pierce and Humoresque. I've seen The Women. I've seen Autumn Leaves. That's where she falls in love with a younger man. He's um, a, a veteran and he has PTSD. I've seen Whatever Happened to Baby Jane and I've seen Possessed. So those are the Joan Crawford films I've seen. I really want to see Sudden Fear. Yeah, I still have quite a few Joan Crawford films I want to watch. And what pulls me to her is that she is a woman of intense, powerful, volcanic emotion. And I think that's what I love. I love the intensity of her roles and her acting. But she manages to mix this very, this external toughness like she comes off really strong, really tough at times. She mixes that with this internal, emotional vulnerability and fragility. When I'm watching a Joan Crawford film like Mildred Pierce or Humoresque, and maybe not so much with Johnny Guitar, but I think with some of her other stuff, the melodramas that she did, I have the sense that this woman could fall apart at any moment. Karina Longworth mentioned this in, an, in one of her episodes is that once she got into her middle age, when she was doing these films like at Warner Brothers, a lot of the women she played were rejected by men. They were romantic. She was romantically and sexually rejected by them. And there's such a way that she conveys heartbreak that moves me. Maybe because I have been going through a lot of that lately of just feeling heartbroken and stuff. I can relate to what she's communicating through her face and through her eyes. A woman who has been rejected, a woman who is unloved, a woman who feels broken inside. And that comes through for me with a Joan Crawford performance with some of these films. The sense that she could fall to pieces at any moment, but she's keeping it together on the outside. You know, she's staying strong on the outside and externally trying to convey strength or whatever. But you can see it in her eyes. You can see it in her face that she could fall apart at any moment. In that Criterion edition, there's an interview with Molly Haskell, a film critic. I like Molly Haskell. And she says about Joan that Joan is indomitable and fragile. And when Molly said that, I wanted to clap. Yes, she put it perfectly, that there's something indestructible about this woman and yet profoundly fragile and vulnerable. And that just pulls me in. 
It absolutely pulls me in. I don't find it with other actresses. Betty Davis seemed really tough to me. Like Betty Davis has a power about her, but she has, she has a vulnerability. I haven't seen enough Betty Davis personally. She certainly has an emotional thing as well, but there's a toughness about Betty Davis. There's a toughness about Barbara Stanwyck. Like think about Babyface or something, but she's really good in Sorry Wrong Number. I saw that recently and absolutely loved it. That's a great performance. Marilyn Monroe has the fragility Marilyn Monroe doesn't have the toughness at all. That's probably why I love Marilyn. Like, she's exposed. She's almost like a wound in a way, particularly with the misfits. So I see in different actresses these components separately. Like, oh yeah, they'll be tough, but maybe they don't have the same fragility. Or they'll have the fragility, but not the toughness. But with Joan, I see both mixed together and sort of fighting it out a little bit and clashing. There's like this toughness and then there's this fragility that's always warring. She has a rawness at times for me. I want to talk a little bit about the making of Mildred Pierce. So in 1943, Joan left MGM and she went to Warner Brothers. Karina Longworth talks about this point in Joan Crawford's career on You Must Remember This. This film is made when she's in her middle age. You know, she's in her 40s. Mildred Pierce is her big comeback film. She really remakes herself through this film and Karina says that it's pivotal in her career. And I love something that Karina mentioned in her episode. She said that that Joan in these films, when she's in her middle age, she represents adult womanhood. These are films about grown women, like fully formed grown women who are complex and aching. I think. Karina also says that a lot of these films are about social issues of women who are aging. They're not so much about Joan being sexy, but about her inner life, her wounds, her struggles, her strengths, her weaknesses, all of that. There's a lot of romantic and sexual rejection as well in these films, and that's definitely relatable for me. It it resonates. These are women, Karina says, who are self-sufficient. They don't need men for financial support necessarily, but they won't love, they won't romance, but they don't need a man for their financial support. And you see that in Mildred Pierce and Humoresque. And so this makes it harder for these women in these films to find love and to deal with romance. All this information comes from Karina. Mildred Pierce is based on the novel of the same name by by James M. Cain. Double Indemnity was another novel by James M. Cain that got adapted into a film. Barbara Stanwyck was originally going to be offered the role of Mildred Pierce, and I could absolutely see Stanwyck in this role. I think she would have been good, but I think Joan works better. And uh, But Michael Curtiz was so impressed with Joan Crawford's screen test that he wanted her to have the part. Curtiz was coming off of Casablanca. I have an episode about Casablanca. I love that film. Very important to me. According to Karina, in the book version of Mildred Pierce, Vita does not shoot Monty. Instead, Mildred lets Vita have Monty. She's always giving everything to Vita, always protecting Vita. He doesn't get killed in the novel. I thought that was interesting. I've never read the book. For Mildred Pierce, Joan Crawford won an Oscar. She'd never even been nominated until that point. She did not attend the ceremony, and that was probably so she could get attention, because <laughs> I guess people would pay more attention if she weren't there. It could have been to get attention or it might have been for her nerves. It's not totally clear, but 
Yeah. So now let's talk about Mildred Pierce. Directed by Michael Curtiz, released in 1945. And our cast is Joan Crawford as Mildred Pierce, Anne Blythe as Vita Pierce, Zachary Scott as Monty Berrigan, Jack Carson as Wally Faye, Eve Arden as Ida. She has so many great one-liners. I love that scene where they're drinking and she's like, to all the men we've loved, the stinkers. (laughs) I love that. I love that. Bruce Bennett as Burt Pierce, who is her first husband. So yeah, that's our cast. I like Michael Curtiz. I've seen a few of his films. Casablanca is definitely my favorite, but I think he does really great work with Mildred Pierce. What's interesting about this film, Molly Haskell says this in her interview for the Blu-ray, it's a mixture of noir and and a women's picture. The film starts with the murder of Monty. So that's the noir. That's the mystery. That's what keeps you watching. Who killed him, right? Who killed this man? Who shot him? So that begins that part, you know, that begins the film. That's the noir aspect is that mystery, that crime. But then there's also this woman's picture built into it as well. And that comes more with the voiceover. It's like a film within a film. That's how Molly Haskell described it. We see Joan or we see Mildred's life. We see her sacrifice as a mother. We see her starting the business. None of that has anything to do with noir. That's about a woman's life. So that's the woman's picture. And then we also have this noir thing. And I think it's an interesting combination. I think it makes the, it's, you can't really categorize the film completely. I think that central mystery at the beginning keeps you watching. And then also Molly Haskell says that another mystery of the film or the question of the film is who is Mildred Pierce? And I think that's fascinating too. I think that's also why you're watching is to you're watching because you're fascinated by this woman. This woman in the 1930s, it's set in the years after the Great Depression. This woman who's a mother and a wife at first and then also becomes a businesswoman and a single mother. And she also has a sexual relationship with Monty before they're married, right? She's all kinds of things built into one. And she's not exactly what you expect or who you think she is. But she's the heart of the film. She's the core of the film. This woman. It reminds me of the Kate Bush song, This Woman's Work. That's what the film's kind of about. About a woman's work. The work that this woman does to take care of her daughters. Both of them at first and then Kay dies and so it's only one. And to create this life, to survive, to make her dream come true of having this restaurant and being a businesswoman. Yeah, it's about a woman's work as a mother and also as a work as a worker, as an um a businesswoman and just a person as well, her own individual identity. Haskell also said that Vita is the femme fatale of the film. Like that that's also how it connects to the noir, which is really interesting that the daughter, she's monstrous in a lot of ways. Although I'm going to talk about Vita maybe in a more complicated way. I I absolutely see her as the villain and the femme fatale, but I also think there are some things about her. It's I don't know, I think it's complicated because it's like Vita doesn't exist in a vacuum. That's what I'll say. She doesn't exist in a vacuum. And when a young woman or something is obsessed with material possessions and all of this, where does she get that from? Like, does she get that from her 
her parents? Does she get that from her culture and the society she's living in? A society that values possessions that even turns her into a possession? I don't know. We live in a very materialistic and greedy society, a very consumerist society. But then when people want things or they like possessions, we judge them. Well, it's kind of like the context and the environment where they're being raised, the society where they exist, we're obsessed with buying things. We're, you know, that's what capitalism is about. There are goods and we buy them and we consume and consume and consume. We're always empty. We always need more, more, more. I think Vita, for me, maybe that's what she represents or something. For me, I almost felt like she represented something about American society or something like the need for more, the greed. Nothing is ever enough. No matter how many clothes you have, no matter how nice of a house you have, no matter what you have, it will never be enough because society and our culture tells you you need more, more, more. You need status. And I just think Vita, in a lot of ways, is a product of that. She's born out of it and created from it. But she's the femme fatale. I'm not denying that she's pretty terrible. <laughs> she's spoiled. I think the opening scene is really interesting. I don't want to linger on it too long, but it the film begins with this shocking moment of violence, right? The murder of Monty. And he actually says the name Mildred as he's falling to the ground. And so the whole film, when you watch it the first time, you think that Mildred probably shot him. It's not until the end that you find out it was Vita. I loved that beach house too. I love the beach house in this film. I really do. But I think it's interesting after Mildred leaves the house, we see her leaving the house and she's on that boardwalk. I think that's, there's something about that scene where she's in her fur coat and her fur hat and she's just standing um, by the railing on this boardwalk and she's crying. The opening is so interesting because it begins with tears and bullets and that's all you need for me to watch. <laughs> Have me some tears and bullets and I'm there. It's a noir, it's a melodrama, it's a woman's picture and I was hooked immediately when I watched it. I love all of that together. But she's standing at the railing looking at the water and you get the sense she might jump until this police officer comes along kind of bothers her and she's like leave me alone <laughs> I loved that I loved how blunt she was that's also the thing about Mildred in this film she has a fragility I think I think her softness and her vulnerability comes out with Vita she can't even be rational about Vita she is completely emotional about her daughters and particularly Vita and then there's this like really tough part of Mildred where she's running her business she's on her feet all day she's baking cakes she's making things happen she's active and smart and witty and she has some great one-liners when she's talking to Wally or Monty so she has that interesting mixture as I said about Joan Crawford the toughness and then the fragility. And I think that's what fascinates me the most. So she's telling this police officer, leave me alone. Leave me alone. Let me cry on the boardwalk. So then she meets Wally and then they go back to the beach house. Like we've just seen her leave it and then we see her go back to it, right? And then she like leaves it again. <laughs> it's it's kind of an interesting opening, right? Where you're not quite sure what's going on. And then she ends up at the police station. They've told her that Monty's been murdered and all of that. And that's when at the police station, she starts to talk about her life up to that point. So it's 
I don't know. It's interesting the way the film's structured. I'm just realizing it as I'm talking about it. We see Monty get murdered. We see her run away from the house, go to the boardwalk, right? And then she meets Wally and then they go back to the house. She runs away from it again and then she's at the police station. And then we're going back and we're learning about her life and everything that transpired that led up to this moment of violence. What caused it and what happened and all of that stuff. That's so interesting. So we start with a noir type premise, this crime, and then we shift into a melodrama or like a woman's picture, as Molly Haskell said, where it's about this woman's life, this woman's work, and also her relationships, her relationship with her daughters, mainly Vita once Kay dies. Um, I mean, the whole film is about women's relationships, friendship, um, sisters, mothers and daughters. That's something I like about it too. Ida gives some good comic relief throughout the film. It's about Mildred's relationships with men. I'll talk about that much later. So it's all, it's about all these different relationships, right? It's also a film about class, about social mobility, wanting to climb up and have a more comfortable, luxurious life. That's the big struggle, for Mildred. She wants to give her daughter the best life possible. She wants her to have everything that she didn't have when she was Vita's age or whatever. We don't know a ton about Mildred's upbringing, but we know that it was working class and we know that it was probably poor and probably difficult, just like it was for the real Joan Crawford. And coming from that, she didn't want her own daughter's to struggle. And that's very clear in the film. So the central thing for me of this film is the relationship between Mildred and Vita and what that relationship says about motherhood, about what it's like to be a mother, the self-sacrifice, the thanklessness of it, um, and the work that goes into it. If you think about it, she's a worker in different ways. Like she's a worker at the restaurant, but being a mother is work. So much is expected of Mildred. And so I love that she's telling her own story about her life. She's at the police station and she takes the detectives back to her life and how everything started. And it's in her own voice and she's telling the story. She's doing the voiceover. And I think that's really interesting that she's telling the story. And her story is defined by motherhood and it is defined by her relationship with Vita. That is the core of the film, and that's what I'm going to be talking about now. Mildred says that she was always in the kitchen, that it was like she was born in a kitchen and she had been there all her life. I think Mildred's story is the story of a lot of women of that time period, a lot of mothers of that time period. She married Bert when she was 17, and they had two children, Vita and Kay. Her whole life has been serving others. Being a wife, being a mother, taking care of the house. Even when she goes into the restaurant business, that's a service job. And through this film, I think we get a glimpse of the labor and the difficulty of motherhood and the expectations that are put on women, even today, to do so much for others and to essentially neglect themselves. It's something that a lot of women still struggle with, that they are expected to do so much. And I think Mildred... It's probably one of the most powerful films about motherhood. I think Mommy Dearest is such a caricature 
of motherhood. I don't think Mommy Dearest in any way is a relatable portrait of a mother-daughter relationship. Mildred Pierce is more complex, while Vita is definitely the villain and she's monstrous and spoiled. I do think a lot of people could maybe relate to that relationship a little bit. It's, it's a toxic relationship. It might be codependent in some ways. It might be excessive. Mildred is so wrapped up in Vita, but it happens. You know, I do think some mothers and daughters can can have those kinds of relationships with each other. I think it's a more insightful, complex, interesting portrait of motherhood, for sure. From the beginning, Mildred is very protective of Vita. When Mildred and Bert are having that big fight, which basically ends their marriage, it's over Vita. He says something about the way that she spoils Vita, and he threatens to slap her, and Mildred is not having that. She threatens him back. So we see immediately that Vita means something very special and specific to Mildred. She has endowed, I think, a lot of her own dreams and ambitions onto Vita. She wants her to have a better life. She wants her to have more, but there's something else happening here. And I'm not sure I totally know what it is. She is so in love with this child in a way and wants so much for her. It's intense everything that she wants for Vita. And Vita can't possibly live up to this, right? Like she has Vita doing different like uh, piano lessons, right? And Kay has ballet lessons. I think she wants the girls, she wants them to be something. I think that's a part of this too. She wants them to be accomplished. Maybe because she's really only up to that point been like a housewife and a mother and there's this sense that she wants more for Kay and Vita. Like she wants them to be more accomplished and ambitious. She wants them to be more than what she is. She works so hard and does so much but she doesn't seem to value herself or to value the work that she does because she doesn't want like Vita to become like that. It's not enough for Vita to just be a wife and mother. She wants Vita to be accomplished. She wants Vita to be something in the world. Do you get what I mean? She doesn't want Vita to just be a wife and mother like she is. But being a mother is hard. It's hard fucking work. It's difficult. It's it's thankless. It's grueling. It's exhausting. Being a mother is serious work. Serious labor. Stressful. It's not easy at all. And we don't value it at all, it feels like. We denigrate it. That's what's weird to me. It's like, we denigrate women who are mothers, who are just mothers, right? We place this value on women that's very strange to me, where it's like, you are completely defined by your work, by your work outside of the home, like your work in society or capitalism. That's what I'm saying. So does she have more value once she starts a restaurant than the value that she had raising her children? Like that's a 24-7 job raising a kid. I can't do it. I'm 32 years old. I will never have a child. I don't even know if I physically can, to be honest with you. I will never have a child, ever. Because I'm not mature enough. I'm not even physically able to do it. 
it would be too much on me. So I do respect women who have children and who raise them. And some of them raise them as single mothers. I have even more immense respect for single mothers. Why is that not valued? I guess that's what I'm asking here is what's the difference here? right? Whether she starts a restaurant or she's a mother to her children, she still has value as as a woman and as a person, no matter what her job is or anything like that. Whether she works outside the house or she doesn't, being a mother is not easy and we don't value it the way that I think we should. And even when it comes to feminism, we don't talk enough about making sure that mothers are valued and have more resources and could maybe even be paid for that kind of work that they're doing or should have resources that they need as mothers or particularly single mothers, making sure that there's resources for those women and all of that. We put all of a woman's value or even people's value on their jobs, what they do, their jobs. We're not our jobs. I really wish we'd get away from that. Whether you work at McDonald's or you work in the corporate world or you work in insurance or you work at a call center or you're pouring cement, you're building a house, that doesn't define your worth as a person. That is not the totality of who you are. You also have other parts to your identity and you have worth just because you're a person and you're alive and that is your worth and your value. But when it comes to women and motherhood, it's like, oh, she's just a mom. She's just a stay-at-home mom. And I know there can be judgment on both sides. There can be judgment of the women who work outside, the mothers who work outside the home. And then there's judgment of the mothers who work inside, who just do that, who just work um, as mothers. They're stay-at-home moms. And it's like, it doesn't need to be that way with women. There doesn't need to be the judgment either way. That's how I feel about it. About it. It's whatever you want to do, but not a lot of women even get the choice. I mean, I think about with the pandemic, how a lot of mothers had to stay home with their kids. Like they didn't, they had to leave the workforce because somebody had to take care of the children because the daycares were shutting down and schools were shutting down. So a lot of women don't even get the choice, right? To be a stay at home mom, they have to work. They don't have any choice. They might like to be at home and take care of their kids that way. Well, what are we doing about that? I mean, I think we should do something where it is a choice. Do you want to be able to work out work and be a mother? Would you rather be a stay-at-home mom? Like, let's make sure women have choices here. But I'm talking about a feminist utopia that doesn't exist. But I'm just saying, I feel like we should value mothers. That is what I'm saying and that I've gone on a tangent and a rant about. And for some reason, Mildred doesn't see her own value as a mother and what she's doing. Because she doesn't want Mil- she doesn't want Vita to have just that. She wants Vita to be more accomplished and stuff like that. She's ferociously protective of these girls early in the film. Maybe because she knows nobody else is going to take care of them. No one else is going to encourage them and push them. So it has to be her. It's not going to be the men. <laughs> the men in this film. <laughs> the stinkers. <laughs> The men in this film are so useless. <laughs> like Mildred has to get things done. It has to be um it has to be on Mildred. So she's all about her girls, all about her girls. 
But we also see early on that Vita is insatiable. And we see it when Mildred bakes all those cakes and buys that dress for Vita. And Vita just tears it apart. She hates that dress. And Mildred overhears that. So we we learn early on with Vita that her taste is very expensive. And nothing's ever good enough for her, basically. Mildred's not even good enough. I think Vita is somebody who can't really love. That's also the sad thing about Vita is that she's so materialistic and so obsessed with possessions that she's not capable of love. And I do think the film in a way, I'm not saying this is purposeful, but I think it's a warning about a, about a consumerist society and about a materialistic society that's focused not on relationships and love and connection, but about possessions. I think with Vita, there must be a hole in her. I think there's a void somewhere in her that she is trying to fill with all these fancy dresses and the car and the fancy house and money and more, more, more. Something created this void. And I don't know if it's like the culture she's living in, the materialism. I think it's a warning about a society that becomes so incredibly materialistic and greedy that it you become like this you just have this black hole inside of you that swallows all these things and it's never enough because Mildred can give her things but Mildred also tries to give her love Vita doesn't want the love she wants the things she wants the possessions and that's where Mildred goes wrong though is that she thinks that giving Vita things is the same as loving her. I don't think Vita knows how to love, and she doesn't know how to give love. She barely touches Mildred. She'll barely hug her at all. A good example is the scene where Mildred goes to talk to her before bed, and at the end of it, uh, Vita doesn't want to be touched. She's like, oh no, we don't do that, or so I don't even know if I'm saying the scene right but she like Mildred goes to hug her and Vita doesn't like that she doesn't even know how to deal with physical affection she is so alienated from people she's so disconnected she's so incapable of love or tenderness she is just a black hole of insatiable hunger for status for money for possessions and look what that does to her look at Monty who comes from money, and he's like very amoral. You know, he's very like empty. There's an emptiness about the characters who are obsessed with wealth and status and money. I think that's interesting. And I, and I think there's something in the film about that. I think there's a commentary going on, or maybe I'm picking up on it. But I guess I see Vita as a warning or as a representation of what happens when you raise somebody and you only give them things and possessions or, or they're, they're living in a society where possessions are more important than relationships. Things are more important than people. And that is the world we're living in today. We're living in a very avaricious, greedy, materialistic, consumerist, capitalist society now. And it's all about buying things and selling things and things, things, things. But it doesn't make anybody happy. Nobody's really happy with all those things. Like Vita has everything. Vita has a nice house, pretty clothes. She's beautiful, right? She's physically beautiful. And Blythe is stupendous in this role. Like so rotten and so spoiled, but so beautiful. She gives a great performance. She has everything a girl could want. <laughs> 
And it's still not enough. It's still not enough. And she also can't love. I think Mildred loves her, but Aunt, but um, Vita can't open herself up to that love. She only wants things and possessions. She even tells Mildred to marry Wally in that scene where they're, um, where Vita's about to go to bed and Mildred comes in and she wants Mildred to marry a man that she doesn't even love so that they can have a rich life with maids and luxury. That's what Vita wants. She wants luxury. She wants to be rich. She wants status. She wants class status. And she's willing to sacrifice her own mother's happiness to have that wealth. She doesn't care if Mildred loves Wally or wants to marry him. But the thing is, is that Mildred wants Vita to have all these material possessions. So in a way, Mildred is complicit in all of this. And that's at the ending too. And I'll talk about the ending when it when I get to it. But Mildred enables this behavior in a way. I'm not saying 100%, but she contributes to it. She enables it. She fuels it by giving all those possessions to Vita by seeing those possessions as the ultimate measure of her success as a mother. That it's not about, oh, is Vita kind? Is Vita good? Is Vita capable of love? That's not how she's measuring Vita's happiness or her own, what she's giving Vita. She's measuring herself by her own ability to give possessions to Vita. Like, can I give Vita a car? Can I give Vita the clothes that she wants? So her own worth as a mother and a provider is based on the material possessions that she can give to her daughter. She's so blinded by her love for Vita that she wants her to have everything. And she's not really horrified by Vita's materialism until until the point comes. I'll talk about that. She encourages it because she thinks that to have a good life means having things. And that's a very American value, I think. When we talk about the American dream, we don't talk about, oh, being kind, being good, being loving, finding peace and healing, having a good community, being there for others. No, when we talk about the American dream, we think of things like, oh, you have a good house, you have a car, you have that, right? You have material comfort. So it's very American, these values. That's what I see. And of course, Mildred measures things by possessions and so does Vita. That's all that matters. It's sad in that way. The only way that Mildred can have Vita's love is to buy her things, is to make her happy through fulfilling all of her wants. I think she wants Vita's love more than anything. I think that's what Mildred wants. Um, Vita wants things and Mildred wants love. So when she buys Vita cheap things, Vita doesn't love her. Vita must only have the best. And so giving Vita these higher end items and luxurious stuff, that's how Mildred gets her love or receives her love, if it's love at all. I think it's interesting how the film is about, it's about being a single mother. Bert isn't there very long. They have that fight. She finds out Bert's been cheating. Plus Bert threatens to slap Vita and she's like, you need to go. (laughs) I'm not going to take this anymore. So we see the struggle of a single mother. I think that makes the film really important in that way. How she is determined to give a good life to her girls once Bert is gone. It's about this woman's life crumbling. It's about a broken family. 
what was sad to me about the film was like at the beginning of the film, once the murder has been revealed, but when she's talking about her life, they begin as a family, as one unit, and then things start to gradually fall apart. The divorce, Kay's death, all of that, and life just starts to crumble. And by the end of the film, if you think about it, Mildred has lost both of her daughters. And it's just her and Bert left by themselves. So they had started out as this family at the beginning, and then by the end, they're destroyed in a lot of ways. So Mildred's life starts to fall apart. She has no help. She's doing everything on her own. She's really figuring it out as she goes along. She's tough, but she's also soft. She can work these hard, long hours, but then she can't say no to Vita. I think that's an interesting contradiction as well. I think Mildred is a woman trying to take control of her life and her destiny. I think that's a really compelling part of this film. She wants to make things happen. She wants to be independent and capable, own her own business. I love that about her. I watched this really interesting documentary on Amazon Prime. It's a documentary series called Lula Rich. And it's about the multi-level marketing company LuLaRoe. And about, some say it's more of a pyramid scheme. It was this, it's this clothing company. They sell these really brightly patterned tights. And they also sell skirts and uh, dresses and other things. And they recruited these women to sell this clothing. But then a lot of the women would make money from all the women that they would re they would recruit to sell the clothing as well. They would get a bonus for every woman that they recruited. And you had to buy the product. So they had to buy so much inventory, thousands of dollars worth of inventory. And then they would sell it and they would make money off that. But they also made money when they recruited other women to do the same thing. And they would get a bonus check. Some of these women could make thousands and thousands of dollars a month from this. And eventually the quality of the product started to go south. The company has some really disturbing things that it did. And there was a class action lawsuit against them in a few places. And women felt like they were preyed on, right? And they were exploited. And that this was more of a pyramid scheme. Although you could also argue that multi-level marketing is a scam. It's legal multi-level marketing, but it's also predatory in a way. But what was fascinating about this documentary series, well, I think it's really good. I think it's really well done. It's four episodes. A lot of the women who got into LuLaRoe as sellers of this clothing and most women did not make their money back. You had to start with $5,000 and you had to buy the product and then sell it. A lot of women were selling breast milk to come up with that $5,000. They would use credit cards, all kinds of stuff. But a lot of the women who got sucked into LuLaRoe, and it still exists. There's still women selling this stuff and the company does exist, but it's gotten a lot of bad press and it's the people who own it are a piece of work. That's for sure. The women who were sucked into it were a lot of stay at home moms who were enticed by the idea of, oh, it's basically like you're starting your own business. And you are the master of your destiny. You buy these products and then you sell them and you can make money 
you can provide for your family and you can own your own business and you can stay at home and take care of your kids. A lot of the women who talked in the documentary were stay-at-home moms. That's why they were drawn to it. What I'm trying to say with this, I recommend the series, it's only four episodes. What I'm trying to say is that There's something powerful about that dream of owning your own business, particularly for mothers. To have that control over their lives, to be able to set their own schedule so that they can take care of their children and also bring in income and bring in money and have more power over their lives. And so that's what I saw in Mildred. I watched that Lula Rich documentary. It's called Lula Rich. The company is called Lula Row. I don't know if that's confusing. I watched that documentary with my mom and then I watched Mildred Pierce and I couldn't help but see similarities of the women wanting to be entrepreneurs, wanting to have their own business. That's what was so enticing to a lot of these stay-at-home moms. And so that's, I think, what's interesting about Mildred is that she wants to own her own business and nothing stops her. She's tenacious. Wally and Monty help her start the restaurant. It's called Mildred's Fine Foods. I really wish they could have come up with a better name for the restaurant. (laughs) Mildred's Fine Foods. I was like, that's not the best name for a restaurant. But apparently the chicken is really good and the food is really good. So Monty and Wally help her, right? She gets Monty's property. Wally gives her advice and stuff and all that. But she's the one who puts in the blood, sweat, tears, and long hours to make it a success. She does all of that. And once Kay dies in the film, that really um, intensifies things. Molly Haskell said something really interesting that I didn't think about the first time I saw the film. But the death of Kay comes after Mildred has her sexual thing with Monty. When they go to his beach house and... He sort of rips her robe off. (laughs) She's wearing her bathing suit. She's sexually liberated with him. She's having, she's being with him before they're married. And right after that, Kay dies. And she's like punished. It's like she's punished for that. And that's kind of how they use Kay's death a little bit. That she's punished for her sexual liberation. And this intensifies her relationship with Vita. Nothing's enough for Vita. And it ramps up, I think, Vita's materialism. Like maybe the death of Kay, like the void, the black hole in her gets bigger and deeper and darker And she fills it and fills it and fills it and it's never enough. It is never enough. Mildred gives her this nice car, all kinds of things. She's still borrowing money from waitresses, remember? And she looks down on Mildred for working for a living. Monty looks down on her too. Even though she benefits from everything that Mildred does, Mildred's success, she still judges her mother very harshly. But part of me can't really blame Vita for wanting the good life and the finer things. Again, she didn't. She doesn't exist in a vacuum. And I think she's a product of her time and her place and her country, her society. And to be honest, I want things too. It's not easy being working class. Like, it's not fun being poor. I, I have been poor. I have had times in my life where I was on food stamps. I I had to go to food banks. So yeah, my dad was on disability before he passed away. I talk about that more in my episode about I, Daniel Blake, I believe. I have been poor, working poor, and working class for much of my life. It is painful, and it's hard. It damages you. 
It damages your self-esteem. You don't have access to health care. Like, I don't have access to dental care. And I have issues with my teeth because of it. I don't have regular access to health care because I don't have health insurance. There is material pain that comes with being working poor or poor working class, however you want to define it. Not financially stable or comfortable. Let's be honest here. Life is easier when you're rich. (laughs) It's more fun. I didn't grow up going on vacations. My grandparents happened to have a house, like a lake house. I mean, it's not, it wasn't fancy or anything. And we'd maybe go once a year when I was growing up, but I never traveled. I never went places. We didn't have money for that. So I'm just saying when you have money and you're wealthy or you're comfortable, yeah, life's better. (laughs) I'm not saying money buys happiness, but money allows you to have health care. Money allows you to have a nice house with air conditioning and heating if you need it. Things that you like. You know, you can have clothes. You can have dental care. You can have, you can have nice food. Like you can have all, you know, you're not eating ramen or something like that. Money does give you a nice, better life. You know, you can wear good clothes and have nice things. You don't have to go without. Does Vita take it too far? Yeah, but I don't know if I can blame her for wanting to be rich. I mean, I know that sounds terrible, but it's like, yeah, if somebody came along and wanted to give me thousands and thousands of dollars so that I could buy all the candles I want and the books I want and travel the world and have nice clothes and all the things that I want, would I turn them down? No, I wouldn't, you know? If I got with somebody who was like wealthy or something like that, I wouldn't complain about it. (laughs) I want things. You know, I'm just like everybody else. I actually, because I have an addictive personality, sometimes I'll buy things to make me feel better. So in a way, I guess with Vita, I felt a bit more conflicted because I'm not a shopaholic by any means. I don't have the money for that. But like sometimes I'll go on eBay and buy myself a used book or sometimes I'll buy things when I'm sad or I'm down. Like I'll buy a candle, right? Or I'll buy a book or something like that. And or a t-shirt. Like I've gotten really into, I like all my, I like these t-shirts that have bands on them. So like I have one of Joy Division unknown pleasures um the um the album (laughs) the album cover I love I have a Stevie Nicks t-shirt Fleetwood Mac t-shirt I have one of Reba of Casey Musgraves her album Golden Hour which I love Led Zeppelin Kiss Marilyn Monroe I'm actually wearing a t-shirt right now that has Marilyn Monroe on it so I'm just saying like that that makes me happy when I get a candle <laughs> or when I get a t-shirt or I get a book. <laughs> like some days when that when I know that that's coming in the mail, like that makes me feel good. Yeah, buying things at times makes me feel good. Maybe I'm using those possessions to fill some kind of void. I justify my book buying though because it's a book. It's poetry. It's bringing beauty into my life, right? So I justify that. But when I buy things, it it makes me feel better. You know, I don't have somebody to shower me with gifts or to spoil me, right? Like I, I buy those things for myself when I can. You know, when I'm able to. Buying the Mildred Pierce Blu-ray. I really loved getting that for myself. And I got it for the episode too. I wanted to use the extra features. I got um, Andre Tarkovsky's Mirror 
which was recently released by Criterion Collection. They released it in July, which was my birthday month, and I loved getting that. That felt nice. So I'm just saying for some of us who are really lonely or we don't have the connection we want or we don't have the love that maybe we want, it's like buying things makes us feel good. Like it makes me feel good to buy things and to know that they're coming and to give a gift to myself or something like that. And so I see a little bit of that in Vita, but she obviously takes it to an extreme. But I also just don't think she exists in a vacuum. I just don't. I don't know if I can totally blame her for wanting to be rich. And she's a teenager. I mean, how do you think a lot of teenagers look at the Kardashians and stuff? Like a lot of teenagers want to be famous and rich and they want things. You're you're kind of materialistic when you're a teenager, right? Um, you are. You want stuff. In a way, I can't blame her because money gives you a better life. It's a, it's a good life. It's never enough. That's the problem. She's so greedy and spoiled. She just wants more and more. And she's willing to sacrifice her own mother's happiness. And, you know, she's so selfish and self-centered as well. Yeah, I'm not justifying Vita, but I'm saying... I understand wanting nice things. That's what I'm trying to say. But Vita takes it to extremes. Like when she pretends to be pregnant uh, after she marries Ted. And then when they're annulling it, she she pretends to be pregnant to get the $10,000. And she's like laughing. Like afterwards, she's kissing. I thought that was so interesting. That little touch of her kissing the check. Like that's what Vita loves. Vita loves money. And I think more than, I think she loves money. And I think she loves the power that comes with money. I think she knows that having the status, having the money, having all that stuff also gives her power in life in some way. And maybe she wants that too. Maybe she wants the power as much as she wants the possessions. I don't know. But she's proud of herself and Mildred sees this. This is when Mildred finally gets it. <laughs> she isn't pregnant at all. She just did it to get the money. And Mildred says that to her. She says, it's never enough. It's never enough for you. And Vita tells her why she did it. She says that with that money, she can get away from Mildred and her chickens, and her pies, and their shack of a house, according to her, even though it's not a shack at all. She can get away from the town that's beneath her. And Mildred says that she's finally seeing Vita for the first time, and how cheap and horrible she is. This scene, this is the scene the scenes like this give me life. If I love anything, if I'm a sucker for anything, it is melodrama and intense emotion in a film. And then Vita says that Mildred is nothing but a common frump. Oh God, it killed me. And then Vita slaps Mildred because she tears up the check. Mildred tells her to leave and get out. She says, get out before I kill you. Oh, it was amazing. Um, that scene is amazing. Absolutely. There's slapping, there's threats of murder, <laughs> all kinds of amazing things in that scene. And so Mildred, as we know, Mildred leaves for a while after that because things got so intense. But the thing is, is that even when she, this is what's so fascinating to me about the relationship between Mildred and Vita is just, like I said, it's the heart of the film. That's why basically that's all I'm talking about is the intense relationship between this mother and daughter it's more like a love affair 
right? And I think Molly Haskell says that in her interview. It's more of like a relationship. It's more of like an unrequited love. I think that's how Molly Haskell described it or something. It's like an unrequited love. Mildred loves Vita and Vita can't love her back. And she's doing everything she can to get the love of her child, to get the love of this young girl. And even when she sees Vita for what she is and sees how horrible and spoiled and all of this stuff, she still can't completely walk away. And I wonder if it's because subconsciously or in some part of her, she knows that she helped create Vita. So she can't totally hate Vita because she contributed to what Vita has become. And that's what we see at the very end of the film. And I'll talk about that. But I think with Mildred, it's like, maybe she feels responsible. Maybe she feels like, I contributed to this. I can't walk away from her because I'm the reason she's like this. Like, I don't think Mildred is blameless. I really don't. I'm not blaming Mildred for everything because I do think there's this tendency to blame mothers for everything, right? Thanks, Freud. Um, <laughs> But it's always the mother's fault. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that Vita is a product of a lot of different factors. The society, the materialistic society she's living in, having a mother who gives her everything she wants and never tells her no. And there's never any consequences for the things that she does. That has an effect, right? When she's spoiled and she's given everything that she wants. So Mildred leaves, but then she comes back. It's almost like Vita is this siren, right? Like there's this siren song and she has to return to her Vita, her girl, you know. Um, she sees Vita singing at that club. And I thought that scene was so interesting because there is so much pain and compassion in Mildred's eyes. And her eyes are glistening with tears while she watches Vita dance and perform at Wally's club. She's fallen in a way. Like it's, I think it's supposed to be a degrading thing for Vita to be performing like that. That it's degrading. It's beneath her in a way. Although she does get attention, which she probably likes. But even after everything Vita has done, Mildred still has the compassion and she still wants to protect Vita. And her love for Vita is just completely unconditional. But that's what can make it toxic and suffocating. Is that she will never turn away from Vita. And in some ways you're in awe of that, I think. <laughs> that she does love this girl so much. To her own detriment almost. But then you also see how it turns toxic. Because she ends up marrying Monty. Just to please Vita. Because Vita wants the luxury and the big house. And that's how she gets Vita to come back home. And when Vita does come back home. And Mildred is standing at the the window. Looking at Vita. She hasn't seen her probably in months. It's like a lover has come back. Right? I mean in that scene. Like it's just. It's like seeing a lover. Like she's looking at a lover. Who she hasn't seen in ages. It's stunning that scene like she's so happy that Vita has come back overall when I think about this relationship between Vita and, and Mildred I think it says something about a mother's love and I think that a mother's love it might be the most intense love there is and in many ways 
it's always unrequited. It's always unreturned. Because can we ever love our mothers as much as they love us? They helped create us. We exist because of them, not the other way around. We didn't help create our mothers physically. Half of us is their DNA. (laughs) Half our mothers, half our fathers. That's just the truth, right? So they created us. We come from them. We come from their bodies. They are our original home. Like I can't even imagine the depth of love that they must have for us, our mothers, right? And I think it is this love that fuels Mildred. And Vita is like her purpose, her meaning, the center of her life. And I'm not saying that's right. I'm not saying that's healthy to make your child the center of your life or to make them your purpose. I do think that parents can get wrapped up in that and they can forget, yes, you created this child and this child is of you and from you, but they're still a separate person from you. That's why I say Vita is a product of Mildred and Vita is also a product of her society and the world she's living in. Mildred is not 100% responsible for everything that Vita does and that Vita has become because our parents are only one part of the story of us. They're not the only relationship or attachment that we have in our lives. A lot of other things form us. So you can never go back and say, oh yeah, it was just this or it was just one thing. I guess if you've had like a really abusive thing, right? And clearly, Joan Crawford in her own life, with her relationship with Christina, that for some reason became abusive. We don't know why Joan did that. If it was from her own abuse of household, I don't know. Doesn't justify it or excuse it. But children are separate from their parents. They are individuals. So yeah, Vita becomes Mildred's world, her universe. There's like nothing else. Everything she does is for Vita. And no man can ever compete with that. Like this is the love story of Mildred's life. Like, this is the love of her life, her daughter, Vita. There is no man, no romantic relationship that could compete with the relationship that she has with Vita. But Vita feels, I think, suffocated by it. Vita wants to escape it. She doesn't want to be the meaning of this woman's life. And she's not capable of returning the love that Mildred feels for her. I mean, I'm very close to my mother. And I've always called my mother like my soulmate, the love of my life. We're very close. And people would probably judge that, you know, that we are very close. I'm not Vita and she's not Mildred. You know, we genuinely love each other and have unconditional love for each other. That's why I'm taking care of her. That's why I'm there for her. Am I perfect at it? Am I doing the greatest job at it? No, because I struggle myself and I wish I could do more for my mom. I wish I could be stronger, you know, and be a better caregiver for her. But I'm just doing the best I can to survive each day. Me being exhausted and burned out and worn down is not because of her. You know, it's nothing to do with our relationship or like I don't love her or something like that. It's that I'm a person with limitations physically and mentally. And when you're having to take care of someone or when you're having to watch somebody suffer with with health issues, that takes an emotional and psychological toll on you. But me and my mom are very, very close, for sure. Our relationship is very positive, and I've always loved my mother deeply, and she's always loved me as well. And I wouldn't be here without her, and 
like after my father died, she was all I had. She's all I've had for much of my life. Like we're very, I guess, dependent on each other and that's just how it's been. So I'm really grateful to have her. So this relationship is not representative of my own relationship with my mother, but I do think it could reflect some people's relationships. Like where maybe they feel like their mother is too obsessed with them. Vita doesn't want to be the center of her universe. Vita doesn't want to be the meaning and purpose of her life. Vita wants to have her own life, I think. I think she's uncomfortable with the intensity of Mildred's love for her too. And she can't return it because she can't really love. But this film is about a mother's love. Everything that Mildred does, good and bad, right? Because she does enable some of the worst things about Vita. Good and bad. And she's blinded. You know, she's blinded to Vita's true nature. <laughs> that black hole, that horribleness that's in her. But she still does everything out of love. That's the place that it comes from. And of course, at the end of the film, we find out that it's Vita who killed Monty because Monty didn't want to be with her and didn't want to marry her and she ends up killing him as a result. I think it's so interesting when, when Mildred in that scene after she's come in and Monty's dead and Vita's crying to her and Mildred's over it. Like Mildred is over Vita in that moment. She's going to call the police. She is done. She's done with it. But then Vita is there crying on her shoulder. Give me another chance. It's as much your fault as it is mine. She made Vita that way. I think Vita says something like that in the scene. Mildred helped create Vita. And Vita knows it. And Mildred knows it in that moment. I mean, this is... This is a toxic, codependent mother-daughter relationship. Mildred helped create her. She's sort of like the Dr. Frankenstein. And Vita is her monster. She enabled it. And Vita promises to change. But I think that's a really important part of the film. And I guess that's maybe why the film changed things from the book. Because actually, I think that scene works better than it ending with Mildred giving Monty to Vita. I think there's something so central about that scene when Vita says that, that it's as much your fault as it is mine because Mildred helped create this. She enabled that insatiable hunger for things and possessions. It's not 100% her fault, but she played a part in this. In creating Vita. In creating a character who is so immoral or amoral, I guess. Who just doesn't care and can't love and all kinds of stuff. She's so spoiled and Mildred loved her and Mildred protected her. But by protecting her and keeping her from ever having to be accountable or to take responsibility for her actions or to suffer the consequences of her actions, she fed it and fueled it and helped create what Vita has become. So that scene is almost like a summation of the entire film. It's as much your fault as it is mine because Mildred helped to create Vita. But now that the police know that Vita did kill Monty, Mildred can't protect her anymore. Mildred can't swoop in and save her. And now for the first time in her life, Vita has to be accountable. She does finally have to suffer the consequences of her actions 
instead of being protected. She's no longer protected. Oh, and I love when they're taking Vita away and Mildred says, I did the best I could. That's like, that should be the motto of any mother. I did the best I could. She did. She did the best that she knew how to do. And yet in the process, she didn't help Vita. She thought she was loving her and protecting her and giving her all these great things. But by doing all of that, she she made it so that Vita was almost like stunted as a person where she never had to take responsibility. You know, she never had to go without. She always expected everything and wanted more and more right and Mildred did do the best she could and I think every parent every mother every father does the best they can and as you get older I think at times depending on the kind of parent you had you can have more compassion for them that they did the best they could with what they had even with Joan Crawford we don't know why she did what she did was she replicating Things that she had known in her childhood when she was abused. I don't know. It's it's possible. It's absolutely possible. But then Vita says, don't worry about me. I'll get by. I, but I love that I did the best I could. And you believe it. Mildred did do the best that she could. It's such a film about women. I really think that the central thing is Mildred and Vita, of course. But also Mildred and Ida, right? But it's it's a film about women. Really... All of the men fail Mildred in some way. Like, none of the men can really love her or help her or be there for her. They all fail her. Monty eventually wants to sell his share. Wally, Wally is what he is. Bert is has all the creditors on his back and he cheats on her. And really, like, some of these men double-cross her. Like I said, like, Monty selling his share. When Wally hires Vita at his club... Like, all these men in some way betray her. Bert cheats on her. None of these men truly love or care about her, honestly. So she's failed by the men in this film. None of them are portrayed in good or positive ways. And what that does, all these men failing her, it could also explain her obsession with Vita a bit, that without any other love in her life, this is the only love she has. Like, men can't love her, you know. She wants the love of Vita. And she puts all of her love, instead of into a romantic relationship with a man, she puts her love into this relationship with her daughter. It's almost like Vita becomes maybe a substitute or something. Or she becomes a place where Mildred can direct her love. Because we all have that. We have love. And we want to give it. And sometimes, how do we find the people who want the love that we have to give? You know, I have love to give. And I want to give it to someone. And Mildred's the same way. She has love. And so she gives it to Vita. Because the men in her life are not worthy of it. Or deserving of it. And they can't give any love back to her either. But neither can Vita. So in a way, Mildred is like this woman who gives and gives and gives. And Vita takes and takes and takes. And the men take and take and take. But when does Mildred ever receive? I mean, that's what a lot of women and a lot of mothers and wives go through too. You And as a woman, like just thinking about the role of being a woman in society today. We give and we give and we give. And we are expected to give. We are, especially like from men, we're expected to be caring and all this stuff. Who gives to us? Like who loves us? Who gives love to us? 
so often women give and give and they give so much of themselves and so much of their love and it's not returned. It is not returned. And that's what happens with Mildred. She's sort of this unloved woman. This woman who never gets the love that she needs. She doesn't get it from her daughter. She doesn't get it from the men. She doesn't get it from anybody really. And these men fail her and she has to find an inner strength and the will to overcome what they've done to her, what these men end up doing to her. And with her daughters, in a way, she becomes a mother and father in one. She provides both emotional and financial support to her girls. And even in her interactions with Vita, you know, she's like financially providing for Vita, almost like a father would be expected to, you know. She has to take on both of those roles. She has to find something within herself because nobody else will give it to her. And I think that's a powerful part of the film too, is that she gives so much and she never receives the amount that she gives. She sacrifices so much and she never gets it back in return. And I think that's a big part of being a woman these days is you give and give and you so rarely receive. You so rarely get that in return, particularly from men. You know, I mean, you might get it from your friends, your girlfriends or something or your friendships possibly, but I think it's often hard to get it from men. But in all areas of your life, you can feel that lack and that that absence of love and of receiving what you give to other people. It's a powerful film about mothers and daughters, and I loved talking about it, loved talking about Joan Crawford, and I hope you liked my episode about it. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening. I'd like to give a big shout out to my wonderful patrons, Polina, Stephen, Peter, Spunden, Ellie, Travis, Pierce, Amir, Christine, Jenny, Lane, Haroon, Thomas, Kelsey, Aaron, Juan, Till, JD, Vanessa, Olivia, Jesse, and Michelle. Thank you all so much for being patrons. You make the podcast possible. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.